I invite you to remain standing if you're able for the reading of God's word. This, this Lord's Day sermon text is found in Psalm 30. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible, it's also printed for you there in the bulletin. This is Psalm 30. Let, her, let us give her careful attention for this is the word of the Lord. Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and you have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is, is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made mountains stand strong. You hid my face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I will go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing, and you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. To my, to my glory may, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I read an interesting article some time back about the idea of thankfulness without contingencies, thankfulness without something else accompanied with it. The author made this helpful point of that normally we give thanks for things after we've passed through a season of something, particularly after we've been healed from a sickness, whether it be a cold or a more terminal type of thing, we're often very prone to give thanks for those things after we've been healed. Or on the highway, when we've had a near miss with a car accident, we're very thankful for those things. But the author then pressed this a little further and, and brought up the point that we give thanks for these things, but how often do we give thanks for things when our health is good? In the ordinary times of life, when we're not sick, do we thank God for our health? Or those ordinary times when we drive home safely without any worry about accidents, how often do we give thanks in ordinary circumstances? In other words, how often do we give thanks without contingencies? I will give thanks as long as I have this or thanks as I have that. But what does it look like to have thankfulness without contingencies, to have to think about, I'm going to be thankful if I have this or if this is going well for me? What would it, be, what would it look like to be thankful when things are not going well in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our sickness, in the midst of our tragedies? How can we have thanksgiving without contingencies? There's no cookie-cutter answer, but I do believe that Psalm 30, as a thanksgiving psalm, David helps give us some insight into how we can be a thankful people in all circumstances. So I want to look at this thanksgiving psalm in three points. First one being, we want to look at how David remembers God's faithfulness in the first five verses. We're then going to look at David's spiritual amnesia in the middle portion. And then finally, we want to look to the joyful return that David has. So those are our three points for this morning. And so right off the bat, we just have to acknowledge that in terms of how we read this, it's helpful to know that Psalm 30 is not exactly linear. It doesn't move from start to finish in a clear line. It's perhaps more like a circle 
that we get one half of, and then the second half completes that circle. And so keep this in mind as we read through this psalm, but really what we see is that verses one through five is the same, verses one, the story told in verses one through five and six through 12 is the same story, but it's filled in with greater detail. We kind of see a recurrence of how this story is told. It's a different details are added later on into the story. And so first, looking at where our story begins and remembering God's faithfulness. This psalm does have a title, but it doesn't exactly lend itself to giving us more definitive evidence as to what is going on in David's life. As we read through First and Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Chronicles, it's quite hard to actually identify what exactly life event this corresponds in David's, where this corresponds in David's life. But nevertheless, one through three shows us a picture of David in deep trouble. That's where he jumps in. He's a man who's in deep sorrow and trouble. Verses one, verse one says, "I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes." rejoice over me. We see that in verses 1 through 3, each of these, David is praising God for the same event, but does it from a little bit of a different angle. David thinks of three reasons to give thanks for God for the work that he has done. So he first praises him and says, I will extol you, Lord, for you have drawn me up. This word occurs only, I think, four times in the entire Old Testament, And this is the only place that it doesn't have to do with drawing up water. It's very much that idea that this word is used in context of a well, that you would dip a bucket into the bottom of the well, the very bottom to get water, and then draw it back up. And here David uses this imagery to show the depths of his despair. He he is as one who is at the bottom of the well. He's in the midst of this darkness. He's in the midst of this very low place And if the Lord does not draw him up, he will stay there. He will remain in his despair and in his darkness. But David praises his God because he has drawn him up. He did not allow him to stay in that place. But the Lord lifted him up out of that place of sadness and darkness. And I love what one commentator said, that as as the Lord lifts David out of his situation, David then responds by lifting his voice up to God. David praises his God for rejoicing over him. At the end of verse 1, David further says that God has not let his foes rejoice over him. Verses, as, as these verses go on, we get to see more of what exactly the, the, the situation of David is in, the exact seriousness of his situation. But it's clear that David rejoices that the Lord has not let his foes rejoice over him, that he was in a very dangerous situation that possibly led to his shame and his demise that would have led to his enemies rejoicing. Verse two then, David declares, O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Because of this this idea that the Lord has healed him, many people think that David's not necessarily just in danger with his enemies, but that David is perhaps sick with something, that he's in danger of his life being lost to a particular type of sickness. And so David, seeing this, worrying about this, seeing the danger of the sickness that's come over him, he cries to the Lord, and he says that the Lord is the one who healed him. This doesn't have to be a physical healing that David necessarily recovered from the sickness. This could be that he was restored to his standing, that it could have been a place of spiritual depression, a place of spiritual danger, and the Lord brought him back to stand upright. Verse 3 then perhaps gives us the most vivid picture of David's danger, the danger that he faces. 
he declares, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among the pit. To those, excuse me, you have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Without being super definitive, I think that verse 3 probably helps lends evidence to the fact that David is very sick in this time, that he's dealing with a very serious illness, that he declares that his soul has been brought up from Sheol. We see this word occur many times throughout the Psalter, and probably to much of our disappointment, there are no good definitive answers on what Sheol is. Even as you read the Old Testament rabbis and some of the other Old Testament commentators, there is no definitive answer as to what exactly the psalmist means when he talks about Sheol. So I'm sorry to disappoint you if you came here hoping that that mystery was going to be solved for you. But we do have some idea of how Sheol was thought of, of kind of what this concept meant, what this, what this idea evoked in the thinker's mind as they thought about this reality. Sheol would have been thought about this place as a place of darkness, a place away from God's presence, kind of this idea of an afterlife that removes us from God, that moves us further away from God than closer to him. And so this is what David fears. He's in a very dangerous and dark situation here. He's worried that he will go to this place where there's an absence of the Lord's presence, where there's a darkness, where there's a lack of joy and all these things. David also declares, he says, you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. This is not a common cold that David is suffering with or a suffering that passes through the night. This is a man crying to the Lord, begging for mercy, a man who is on his deathbed, a man who fears the worst that will come. But David declares and praises God because he restored him among the living. He did not let him go down to the pit. He did not die in the end. And so what we see here is that David is really remembering God's faithfulness. We can think of a lot of script, all of scripture in the idea of it's covenantal in the terms that it's relational between God and his people. But particularly here, this is a very personal covenantal remembering that God is remembering, or that David, excuse me, is remembering God's faithfulness to him and the real experiences that he's had in his life. This is not something that's abstract or an idea, but David is recalling specific things that have happened in his life and the specific reasons he's thankful to his God, that his God has healed him, his God has restored him and rescued him. We can see in verses two, we can see in verse two, it's very personal, O Lord, my God. And throughout we see, O Lord, a very term of great reverence and respect that David is calling on the name of his covenant God and remembering all the reasons he has to give thanks, even in the midst of his sickness and hardships from this event. And David not only leaves it there, he doesn't just call himself to give thanks to his covenant God to remember his faithfulness, but he also turns it broader to the covenant community as well. Verse 4 then turns to a broader audience, and he declares, he says, sing praises to the Lord, to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. These are God's saints. These are God's holy people that he's set apart, that he's redeemed, that he's set apart for his own purposes, that he's made righteous. And now David calls them as well. He says, remember that you are God's people. You are God's covenant people. You are a saint. That is a special title to be called God's saint. And he calls them to give thanks for his holy name. They're to call on their personal God. This is not just any 
any deity that they could call on, but this is personal. This is Yahweh. This is the God of Israel, the most holy one that they are to call on. And friends, I think there's a beautiful principle that David gives us here as he turns and extends this invitation to sing praises to the Lord, to remember his goodness to his people, and that the principle is that we have the privilege as God's people, as his covenant people today, to remember God's faithfulness to us, to think of those times like David does, where we were in low places, where we were in places of danger, and to look back on those moments and see that the Lord saw us through, that he was faithful to us, that he was walking with us every step of the way in those things. And today, too, like David calls the saints in this psalm, is our privilege to meditate on God's goodness, to think about that often, to let that permeate in our hearts and our minds and let God's goodness draw us to thanksgiving for the faithfulness that he has shown to us. We then come to verse five, which is perhaps the most well-known verse in the psalm that we've probably heard dozens of times and many of times in various contexts. But before we start to unpack verse five a little bit, I think that we need to get something out on the table that might help us possibly not misinterpret these verses. And it's this idea that God's providence, that when we face hardships, when we face suffering, that that's not always a result of our sin, that there's not an exact correspondence between those things. We should never immediately think that as we suffer, as we go through hard things, that God is punishing us, that somehow this is God's providence falling on us for our sins. We see that in wisdom literature, in Job, and in several other places, people wrestle endlessly with this. How do we, how do we think about these things? It's very complex. But I just want to put that out there as we read verse 5, that there's not a one-to-one corresponding with our sin and our suffering as well. David says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's a beautiful two lines that contrast two alternatives in terms of effect and length as well. We see on one hand that his anger is but for a moment, it's short, but that his favor is for a lifetime, and that weeping may remain for a time, but joy ultimately will be more long-lasting. I love what the Protestant reformer John Calvin said about this. He said, if we were to put these on a scale to measure these two things of joy and mourning or of, of disfavor and favor, that the favor and the joy would always be heavier, would always win out in terms of longevity and the experience that we have. And so David recognizes that God's anger is but for a moment, that sometimes we are sinners who live in a fallen world, and that sometimes as a result of that we come under God's displeasure. But David says that's not the full story. That's not all that there is. There may be anger for a moment, but there is favor for a lifetime. The anger pertains to a short measurement in this life, but God's favor extends to eternity. It is the idea that we have favor in Christ, that God has lavished his love and his favor upon us in Christ Jesus, so much so that we have been forgiven of our sins, we have been reconciled to our God, we've been given peace with our Heavenly Father, that his favor will extend to us a lifetime as we are granted eternal life in Christ. David also recognizes the real reality of suffering. He doesn't say that weeping may tarry for a very brief second, but he does acknowledge that weeping may tarry for the night. This word literally has the idea with it to carry with, if you had someone coming to stay with you, 
they were going to come stay at your house for just one night and then depart. It's the idea of someone kind of having a sleepover at your house for one night, if you will, or hosting company for one night. But then they hit the road again and they go on with their day. They don't stay forever. And so David says it is with weeping too. It may last for a time. There are sufferings. There are very real hardships that we are facing in this life. But that's not all that there is that there will be relief from those hardships. There will be relief from that weeping, and that joy will come in the morning. Nevertheless, while David is exhorting his covenant saints and himself to give thanks to God for his faithfulness, we see that David falls prey to forgetting, something that we are all so common to do, that he forgets what God has done. He forgets God's goodness. And so now we come to David's spiritual amnesia. And so as I mentioned, this is not a linear psalm, so this is part of where the complication of how we read this psalm as a unit comes into difficulty. But I think we should think of this as verses 6 through 7 give us the occasion for why David was in the state that he was in verses 1 through 3. In other words, this is what came right before David had his great sickness, his great hardship. David declares, he says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Again, we don't know the exact correlation with where this happens in David's life, but from this statement, this idea of prosperity, it's a flourishing, it's a well-being of his kingdom. His kingdom is in a great state. There are no threats of enemies that rise up and surround him. This is a time of peace and prosperity and joy for David and his kingdom. And so he looks at all these circumstances, he looks at the peace that the Lord has granted him, and he declares, I shall never be moved. Verse 6 is very important for understanding what has come before as to why David was in the situation that he was. We see this is very subtle, but we need to have this verse to understand verse 7 as well. There's a certain sense in which David looks at his circumstances, he looks at his flourishing, and he declares that I shall never be moved. There's a sense in which David looks to his circumstances for trust rather than the God that has given him those circumstances. And friends, what, what a common reality this is for us as well, still to this day, not as King David, but in our day. How easy is it to look to our own circumstances for trust rather than God? How easy is it to open our bank accounts, to look at our saving, our retirement funds, and look to those and trust and rest on those rather than the God who has declared that he will give us his daily bread, that he will always provide for us? Or how often is it that we look at our own achievements and we declare that those things are a work of our hands, whether it be our job, that we've gotten a promotion, that we declare that I'm the one who did this, it was me that accomplished this. Or even with our children or our, uh, our prestige in society or academics, any of these things, there's a temptation in our hearts to wander and to lose the true source of all those things. It's God. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And what David has done is had a little bit of spiritual amnesia and has forgot that. His mind and heart has not been reoriented to the truth that all things come from God's hand. And so we see a little bit of pride in David here that he's looking more and trusting more in his circumstances than his God. Verse 7, David then goes on and he says, By your favor, O Lord, you made the mountain stand strong. 
Here David is declaring, again, in more fuller terms, the exact state of his kingdom, how exactly his kingdom was flourishing. And he uses the imagery of a mountain to illustrate this. You can think of, if you've been to Montana or Grand Teton, or you can think of any great mountain that you've seen, you see why this is such a good illustration, that when you see a mountain, that you stand at the foot of the Grand Tetons in Wyoming and look up, there is a great majesty and grandeur to those things, that they are not easily conquered, that you would not be able to easily, without it wearing on your body, to climb up those mountains. And further, who is going to move a mountain? It is solid, it is stable in the place that it stands, as it has been there for years. And so David further illustrates this is the circumstances of his kingdom. They are like a mountain, they are flourishing, there's a stability there. And yet, in the midst of that, as David looks to those things for trust, he declares that the Lord hid his face that the Lord has turned away his favor from him, that as he's lost sight of his God, that God has removed his favor from him. And this rightly dismays David, that he recognizes that something that was there before is now gone, namely God's presence. We may be tempted to think that this is a bit harsh, that maybe David just, his mind just wandered a little bit one day and that he, he set his mind on his prosperity rather than his God, And yet I think even as God's presence is withdrawn from David, we should think about this as an act of grace. That rather than allowing David to continue in his trajectory, to continue down the path that he's going, to continue to look to his kingdom for his salvation, God removes his face out of act of grace. And I love what one Old Testament commentator says says about this. He says, this move was redemptive and that the feeling of divine absence caused the wandering psalmist to run back into the arms of God. It's by God's grace and love that he turns his face away from David, even for a moment, for he knows that it will lead to David having his priorities restored, having his heart reoriented towards a proper understanding of all these things. So we come now to David's joyful return. Verse 8, we see that there's a fruit that God's grace has worked in David's life, that he has not gone deeper into his sin, but rather he's gone more outward to his God. He cries out to God and he pleads with him for mercy. We see that this is a sign of repentance, that David recognizes that he has sinned against God, that he has fallen short, and so he turns to the Lord and pleads with him for mercy. And friends, this needs to be our pattern as well in our lives. We will never not struggle with sin until the day we die. We will always struggle with sin as sinners living in a fallen world. We will never move on from that. And so the lifeblood of our hearts and our lives needs to be faith and repentance every day. That we recognize our sin and that we come before our God, turning to him in faith, turning from our sins, knowing that our God is the God who's able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that he's faithful and just to forgive us when we come and confess our sins. Thomas Boston, the great Scottish Presbyterian pastor, said, repentance is not a one-time thing in the Christian life. It is the daily practice of a Christian. And so, friends, so with David, as he shows us, it is ours, too, to be a model of faith and repentance daily in the Christian life, to come before our God and to plead for him with mercy in the ways that we've fallen short. If you, if you read verse 9, as you were maybe prepping for this, this Lord's Day and you're reading this psalm, 
it's likely that this feels like there's an interesting shift as to what goes on, that David is in his presence declaring he's pleading for mercy, but verse 9 takes a little bit of a different tone, doesn't it? It might actually make us a little uncomfortable as we read this. David declares in many questions, what profit is there in my death? What if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? I think we can read this and maybe think that David is trying to bargain or manipulate his way out of his circumstances. Is that really what's happening? Is David appealing to God and saying, did you think about this? If I die, who's going to sing your praises? Who's going to sing your faithfulness? I don't think that's the route we want to take, that God didn't think about this, that God knows all things, so surely that's not the issue. But why does David appeal to these things? I think it's helpful if we think about verse 9 in the broader context of 8 and 10, that this is a plead for mercy, that this is in confession. But also, what David's doing here is not necessarily thinking of alternate circumstances that he knows God has not thought of, but he's appealing to what God has already revealed to him in his promises. David knows that God has given him sweet promises of his, his excuse me, I knew it was a bad idea to have milk for breakfast. David is appealing to God's promises, what has been revealed to him, that the covenant made with David is what he appeals to. It's not something abstract. It's not something that's not been revealed. But these are God's promises that David is clinging to. It's not that he's trying to manipulate God, but that he's doing what is our privilege as well, is to remember God's promises and to cling to those things, knowing that we can trust God, that he doesn't give his promises in vain or half-heartedly, but they are things that we can trust in and look to for our hope. And so that's what David does. Verse 10 finally concludes in a very similar way to verse 8, and he says, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. We see again a picture and a model of repentance, this idea of going to the Lord in prayer, Matthew Henry, the English pastor, brings this out well when he talks about how we view prayer in the New Testament, Hebrews 4, 16, that we are to come before God's throne of grace, knowing that we will receive grace and help in our time of need. And so David, in his prayer, turns to his Lord, knowing that he is the one who will help him and be merciful to him. We've already, we've already seen what happens, that the Lord does end up restoring David, that there is this, through the repentance, that God's grace comes to him and he is restored. But then verse 11 and 12 help wrap up this psalm. Excuse me. Verse 11 has a similar structure to verse 5, where there's two lines and there's two alternatives to these things as we read them. In the first line, David declares that you have turned for me my mourning into dancing, you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. We see here that there are two great alternatives in terms of how long these things last. That first, there's mourning. This is a Thanksgiving psalm, but we might be struck with how, how short the sections of Thanksgiving are, that there's a real presence of danger amidst these things. This is not Thanksgiving amidst of everything going well in terms of perfect health and prosperity. But this is thankfulness amidst difficulties and suffering. And we have to recognize that there is indeed mourning in our lives. We have to sit with that. We live in a fallen world, 
Dear saints, we know so well that life is hard and filled with endless difficulties. We are daily confronted with death, not only in our world, but with our closest loved ones. We struggle with our physical and mental health, struggle and endlessly with these things. We struggle in our marriages. We struggle in our singleness. We struggle to think that we may never be loved by our family, by our friends, even by our God. We struggle to make sense of a world that is filled with brokenness at every single turn. We struggle to make sense of these things. They give us good occasion for mourning. There is a time for mourning. There's a time to lament these real things of a broken world, these real things that afflict us and that we suffer in. But that's not all that there is. There's mourning for a time, but it's replaced with dancing. We may wear a sackcloth for a time, but then we are clothed with gladness. And we are able to have this hope. We are able to have this perspective that these things last for a short time, but that's not all that there is. That we serve the God of hope. That in the gospel of Christ Jesus, we have every occasion for hope, even in the midst of hardships. The gospel can, is a sure and living hope that we can cling to that can transform our thinking even in the midst of hardest circumstances so much so that it gives us joy and heart to keep going. And the reality of the gospel is that God has taken away our guilt and our shame and placed that on Christ at the cross. And in return, he has exchanged and given, clothed us in his perfect righteousness. We were by nature children of wrath, but now we are his sons and daughters and have been given peace with our heavenly father. We fear death as the greatest enemy, and yet Christ, through his resurrection, has removed the sting of death. And though we may die, he has given us the hope of a resurrection and eternal life. Because of the hope of the gospel, as we look to in Christ Jesus alone for our joy and hope, that David is able to declare that these things are hard, but there is joy and I will give thanks in the midst of these things because God has given me a greater promise, a greater promise of mourning that one day Christ will wipe away our last tear in eternity and he will clothe us in eternal glory one day. What could be a more fitting response than to think about this great salvation, to think about the occasion to have joy in the midst of the worst hardships than to sing praises to our God, than to give thanks to him for our great salvation. Verse 12, David declares that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. This is a picture as David reflects on God's goodness of his faithfulness that it's, he's so moved to worship that it overflows out of his heart, that there's a gratitude that he can't keep down. It's like a bubbling well that keeps coming up and up again, that there's endless thankfulness that David gives to for his God. And finally, he declares, O oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David realizes that it's not only enough to praise God in this lifetime, but looks forward to praising God eternally in creation as well. That truly, saints, if we are in Christ, we are those who have been destined for everlasting life, that that is where our inheritance is. It is kept, it is undefiled, imperishable, that is our greatest joy, that our life is hidden with Christ on high and that we too have the promise of eternal life, to be in God's presence for eternity 
and to join with the great cloud of witnesses to praise his name, to call on him, to remember him as our covenant God who has been faithful to us all those years. What does it look like? We started the sermon thinking about what does it look like to have thankfulness without contingency. I said, I believe David helps us because I think one step that we move towards this reality is that we look, we look more and more outside of ourselves. We stop looking into ourselves, thinking of all the things that we have done, all the things that we've brought with the labors of our hands. We look more and more outside of our sin, out of our circumstances, and we look to the unchangeable, the unshakable promises of our God that these things are things that we can rest on, that they will sustain us through the hardest of times, that God has always been faithful to his promises to his people, and he will continue to do so forever. We have to look to God's promises and trust that he works in us by his Holy Spirit, that his Holy Spirit is in us, lives in us right now, that he's the seal, the guarantor of our inheritance in heaven, But even now, as we struggle with sin, we struggle with discontentment, we struggle to not be a thankful people, that the Spirit is able to work in our hearts, that he's able to produce joy and thankfulness as we remember the great salvation that we have in the gospel. And in thinking of such a great salvation, may we all be drawn to thankfulness and praises, knowing that God has given us a hope, not only in this life, but for the life to come, where there will be an absence of all the difficulties that we face now, in this life. Dear saints, look to Christ. Trust in his promises. Always look to the cross that you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus and that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the Psalter. Is often called by so many the anatomy of our soul as it portrays the various emotions, the circumstances, the hardships that we face in this life. And yet, Lord, as David has shown us, we can be thankful in these things, not because we have perfect health, we have perfect marriages, we have perfect relationships, or that everything is going well for us, Lord. But even in the midst of these hardships of sickness, of all the battles that we face, Lord, that we can trust in you, that you are a good God who will not revoke his promises to his people. You are the unchangeable and faithful God. Lord, may we rest in that. Lord, would you comfort our hearts with this promise? Would you be with us as we go into our work weeks? Lord, for those who are our family members and friends and coworkers that are not walking with Christ, Lord, would our thankfulness for such a great salvation, would you, would you give us opportunities to talk with this? with our unbelieving family members to remind them and tell them of the great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And Lord, by your spirit, work in us. Make us thankful people regardless of our circumstances, not denying our hardships or our tears, but in the midst of those things, crying out to you and trusting in you, knowing that you can do a work in us that no one else can do. Give thanks for all these things and pray and ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.